Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. Over the next four weeks, we're going to bring you conversations with people championing equality, trailblazers, advocates, fighters, people with incredible personal stories who are now using their platform to level the playing field for others. First up... I am not prepared to wait until my own granddaughters are not just grandmothers, but great-grandmothers before they see equal opportunities. My guest today is Cherie Blair, CBC QC, leading lawyer, wife of the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, and committed campaigner for women's rights. She set up the Shuri Blair Foundation in 2008 to help women build small and medium-sized businesses through a network of women supporting women or sisterpreneurship. It's not my term. It's actually a term invented by one of the women in Nigeria, and I love it. Shuri is passionate about gender equality, a cause shaped by her own personal experience. When she and a young man called Tony Blair were gunning for the same job, the potential employer said, There's only one place here and I've got two candidates. One's a you and one's a boy. And, you know, obviously we're going to go for the boy. The irony of that was that within seven years, the boy had gone off to do something else because he turned to politics. I am 45 years on and I am still in the law. And she's continuing to push for equal rights. In fact, the lockdown and the events of 2020 have made her even more determined to push harder. Because, as I found out during this podcast, Cherie Blair is not prepared to wait. Here's my conversation. Welcome to Out of Office. Delighted to be here. The lockdown. I want to begin by asking you about that. It's been challenging for many people on many levels around the world. Some people have made the most of it. What's the experience been like for you? Well, I think like most people, um, there have been some positives and, and, and some negatives. Um, on, the, on the positive side, um, I have been, funny enough, exercising more simply because I've been doing Zoom uh, classes. Which, uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but I seem to have found that easier to do during lockdown than I yeah. did before. So that's been quite interesting. Um, and on the other positive side, because of, of both in my foundation and in my own law firm, um, because both cases we already work internationally, um, working from home has proved uh, not to be too much of a burden. In fact, in some ways, ha- has been a benefit. Mm-hmm. On the minor side, during lockdown, I have become a grandmother again twice. Congratulations. <laughs> um, my daughter gave birth to her first child in on the 16th of July this year. And, of course, um, her antenatal experience was very much affected by, by uh, 
the lockdown, as indeed was the birth itself. And mm. I had hoped to be with my daughter during the birth, wasn't able to be there, only her husband. So uh, similarly with my daughter-in-law, yeah. who had gave birth to her third child on the 12th of August, uh, again, um, we had to wait until she came back from hospital before we could see the baby. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's uh, perhaps less of a hardship because we have seen... You've seen the babies, babies. yes. Whereas for those people, of course, who lost loved ones during the um, yes. lockdown, that's been, a, I think, a, a, a huge loss for them. One thing that struck me when I was uh, reading up about you a little bit more over the last couple of days is you've said that the lockdown will push women back to the 1950s. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? What do you mean? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, Because in one sense, the disease seems to have impacted more as a disease on men than women. We've seen that that seems to be the case. but. Um, in relation to uh, the economic position, if you like, the impact on the economy, I think, has impacted uh, more uh, on women. Uh, secondly, of course, uh, women do make up most of the part-time workers. And when we've been having uh, a recession, as we are having, um, part-time workers are often been the first to lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. So women have, have suffered in that respect too and then of course whether you're in employment or self-employed or an entrepreneur uh, as a woman we've always known haven't we that we have to do the two shifts yes oh god yes (laughs) Uh, but uh, normally the two shifts are being sequential you know you go to work you do your job and then out of work you're doing all the other things that women do, housework, organising, you know, even if they don't actually do the housework, they're organising those who do. Yes. The children, making sure that's my elderly relatives, uh, voluntary work, all these things. Uh, what's happened in, in COVID, of course, is that those two things are no longer sequential. They're going on at the same time. That I hate to call, you know, looking after your children a burden, but... In this sense, I can't think of a, a, a better word. So that double burden has intensified, I think, during that. Now, I'm not saying that men at home haven't been helping out. That would be unfair. But the reality is, yes. particularly when it comes to things like homeschooling yes. or housework or caring for, making sure the elderly relatives are getting the shopping, that burden has uh, fallen disproportionately on to women's shoulder and for some women the burden becomes too much mm-hmm. and so either you know as the economy shrinks they apply for redundancy maybe perhaps they wouldn't have done before and uh, what we wouldn't want to see is a turning back of women coming into the workforce because what we have seen over the last 50 60 years is that the more women do come into the workforce and take their equal role in the economy, the better it is for the GDP of their countries and of the world. If you look at the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, which they published yes. in 2006, in 2020, in the four areas they look at, which is employment, education, health, and political engagement, um, 
for the first time ever, economic performance went backwards. They estimated that in their in their report that came out in November 2019, that it would now take 257 years for women had equal opportunity in economic terms to men, and that is 55 years longer than they'd found in 2019. And I think with the pandemic, I can expect that this November, that figure is going to look even worse. That's really that's alarming. Has an impact whether you're in employment as an employee or whether you are an entrepreneur, which of course is the uh, the women that we work with in the foundation. Uh, we're, we're working with them in small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, and uh, for them, the pressures of a declining economy, uh, restrictions on going out uh, have obviously... Uh, and of course, the the, the normal, but and what we've been talking about about the double birth, all of which has has made economic activity for women hard. I wanted to talk to you about the work that your foundation is doing, and I have been familiar with the work your foundation is doing for years. I moderated at one of your foundation events in Mumbai many years ago. Oh, we, we've always done. Um, we've all, we've always had some very good programs in in India, and we have some fantastic, for example, our mentoring program some amazing, not only women mentees, but women mentors as well. Um, and indeed men mentors from India. India is one of our big, um, one of the big countries in our mentoring program. India and South Africa were two of the biggest uh, cohorts. So this idea of supporting women entrepreneurs, which you called uh, sisterpreneurship, which I do, I do. I love, sister, I love I it. I love sisterpreneurship. It's not my term. It's actually a term that right. was invented by one of the women in uh, Nigeria, in Lagos. In fact, because we, we have, as well as our mentoring program, we have our Road to Growth program, which is a business training blended learning program. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the women who did that three-month course um in which not only do we engage the women with learning, but we also set up WhatsApp groups so they can support each other. Yes. And we went we, we went back to see how the cohort she was in had done after a year uh, and discovered that the WhatsApp group, uh, 70% of them were still speaking at least once a month. Oh, good. And 30 or 40% were speaking every day. Wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the expression sisterpreneurs... Yeah. came from, from that woman who said, you know, one of the great things about the program was not simply the learning, but the support and, and networking with women in similar positions. And she was the one who called it sisterpreneurs. Uh, sisterpreneurs. And I love it. I think it's such a great term. I'm curious, how much of a difference does it make or what kind of difference does it make when women support women entrepreneurs or when women support women in business, which is exactly what your foundation does? Well, I think that it it goes back to to a, a deeper question, if you like, which is why is it that women are not um, engaging fully in the economy? Right. What is it? that's mm-hmm. holding them back. And, and the truth is, there are a number of things that, that are going on. And the biggest one of all, I think, is society's assumptions about women. Mm-hmm. What it is uh, that is a woman's role, primary, 
prim primary role. Um, and uh, what was very interesting in, in the survey we did, 600 of our women, when we asked them, had they experienced, not some of them had experienced discrimination, but sexual stereotyping. Yes. 70% of them had experienced some kind of sexual stereotyping. And it was a sort of thing, I think, over 30% of them had found uh, expressions like, you know, women don't understand money. Hmm. Or, you know, women aren't good at business because they're not aggressive enough. So or all the stereotypical roles. things people have said yeah, about women. Yeah, you know, women's yeah. role is really in the home. Right. Now, I mean, that's clearly that is worse in some societies than others. Sure. It's worse in some socioeconomic groups than yeah. others. And actually in India, it isn't always the poorest. No, you're right. It isn't. It's Sometimes it can actually be the richest. <laughs> quite often. It can be, absolutely. Yeah, but that's a, that's a... That's a different conversation a, for a different that's one. That's a, that's a, that's a different conversation, <laughs> if you like. Uh, and reality is, though, the gap is changing. It's still plenty of examples of where families' limited money will go to educate boys before the girls. Yes. Or where boys and girls are educated equally, but the girls are also expected to do various household tasks or looking after younger siblings, which yes. the boys basically get exempted from. Um, and so it starts there. It then, of course, goes on into, yes, women educated, but how many of those educated women actually enter the workforce? Mm. And again, that's because it's regarded as not really a woman's place. place. So the number of women who are then are encouraged to go into entrepreneurship and become the boss is, of course, even fewer. And so there are these fundamental ideas of what a woman's role is. Uh, you know, is she actually as capable as a man? Um, should this be her priority? All of which affect um, women's role in work. On top of that, of course, that has a knock-on effect on the idea of role models. Yes. For too long, and one of the reasons I set up the foundation in the first place is that I had come across this myself, if you like, as the first woman, as first person, actually, man or woman in my family to ever go to, to, to university. That's right. Um, and then um, to find myself, because I did quite well, well, very well, in fact, in the 1970s, suddenly faced with, uh, the reality that however well I'd done in academic life and it came to the real world of mm -hmm. work, mm -hmm. the fact that I was a woman uh, outweighed, if you like, the fact that I had done so well in, in academic life. I remember and a story uh, you once said in which you said uh, Mr. Blair and you were gunning for the same job and you were told it would go to him simply because he was a boy. A boy. Yeah, so absolutely. tell us about I mean, that. That was absolutely the case. We both, in fact, trained together in the same legal practice under the same, uh, we call the pupil masters trainer. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the year, one there was one place. And he, he did say to me, he said, look, there's only one place here and I've got two candidates. One's a you and one's a boy. And, you know, obviously we're going to go for the boy. Oh, obviously. As I, oh. Said, as I said, and you will have heard <laughs> yeah. me said this, the irony of that was that within seven years, the boy 
have gone off to do something else because he turned to politics and right. the rest of his history. Right. I am 45 years on. I am still in the law. That's right. The assumption, yes. the assumption that the man was the better bet was just, uh, just not true. Right, exactly. Those assumptions, and they exist less. I think it, 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 I think it's safe to say in Western Europe, uh, in America, um, young women with good degrees, you know, in, in my own profession, uh, can definitely enter the profession and can definitely be taken seriously. Not least because now there are more role models yes. who, who, who prove that women can do it. But even then, after five years or so, what do we see? We see the difference in income between men and women. Yeah. And it's assumption that at some point the women will be mothers. Yes. Now, the fact that the men will also be fathers. Fathers. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem to have the same weight. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You are a role model, not just to many young girls around the world, but to many people around the world. Who would you say was your role model if you could pick one person? Is there one person you'd pick? Well, I would probably pick two yeah. because I have different hats. My first role model was another woman from Liverpool called Rose Halbrook, who in 1949 became the first Wow. And my grandma, my, I, I was grown up in Liverpool. My grandma was a great admirer of Rose Howard, and she was the woman, first woman to defend someone in a death penalty case in the in the UK. The first woman recorder of Liverpool, and the first uh, woman, obviously Queen's County. Well, she was so many firsts. Right. And she had a daughter. Her daughter, in fact, is a friend of mine. Her daughter is also a QC now. All right. Um, uh, but. The fact that my grandma was a great man talked about her and the fact that I felt this that girl from Liverpool made it and maybe this I have a chance too from Liverpool right could, could do that too and I still think uh, that that is a, a very important role model. My other role model is wearing my, like my other hat, which was wife of a prime minister. Yes. Uh, and, and that role model, obviously, was Hillary Clinton. She was not just a role model, she was also a huge mentor to me. And, you know, when, when she had been first lady uh, for 97, it had been five years by the time Tony became a prime minister and I became the wife of the prime minister. Right, And right. she was always so incredibly helpful and supportive uh, to me. And indeed still is. We still really for friends and just... At the beginning of this year, she um, spoke at the launch that we did at Davos of our 100,000 Women's Campaign for My Foundation. And, yes. and uh, you know, she's a constant supporter of women in 
all over the world and in, in, in all kinds of different areas. How does it work at that level when you say that uh, Hillary and you are firm friends and she was very supportive when you became first lady of your country? What are those conversations like? What can you share with us? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the, the first thing I always remind everybody is actually the first lady of the United Kingdom is Prince Philip. <laughs> That's right. Even though he has retired from that role now. Right. He is the spouse of the head of state. Correct. Um, and of course, the spouse of the head of government is a slightly different position. But there is no doubt, of course, yes. that my husband being prime minister yes. enabled me and exposed me yes. to a, a much wider world, a much particularly more internationally. Right. Um, what was going on than just being a QC in the UK, even though I was one who was doing international work. It was a right. completely different. But you know, the funny thing about it is that I've met many, because I've met many prime ministers and, and presidents, yep. is that to some extent, you know, it's a, it's, it's a pretty small group. Mm -hmm. And for most of those people, they have a lot more in common as human beings and, and in the issues that they face with each other than their political differences uh, might suggest. And for often for many of them, obviously, they can be more frank with their peers yes. than they can be with the people in their own country, many of whom could be their rivals and wanting their job. Sure. And the one thing that, 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 that uh, you know, the President of the United States does not think that the British Prime Minister wants his job. Right. So so they're safe. They're not threatened. Well, sadly, let's hope one day we can save her job. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, but nevertheless, and so, and I, I you know, it, it's interesting, isn't it? When I would meet many first ladies, we would bond over those sort of things that women do bond over. So in our case about bringing, you know, the pressures of, of maintaining some sort of semblance of family life. Sure. Raising kids in the spotlight. Um, I have yet to meet a single first lady who's ever, ever said, oh, the press are marvellous and are so good to us. <laughs> Usually the conversation goes around how you cope with an intrusive press, even though, even though for some of them I'm thinking, gosh, I should be so lucky if that was intrusive. You know? Right. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, it's all relative to what you experience in your country. Um, and then so many of the first ladies that I met shared my interest in women's issues. Yes, right. And uh, and they still do. And I'm, I'm very fortunate, for example, not just Hillary, but Laura Bush, yes, Obama, even though we, should, we didn't overlap, nevertheless, um, uh, that is the case. And then I can think of... Uh, so many, for example, African first ladies mm -hmm. who are, you know I still work with, um, who have been concerned about issues concerning women and children, um, and it's a natural thing almost for them to do because as, as first lady you have not power, you do have a platform, platform a huge platform. And one yes. way of using that platform is to highlight uh, the issues you feel passionate. How did you reconcile this position that you held as, well, technically not First Lady, but as the spouse of uh, of the Prime Minister in your country? You know, then you're known as his spouse, but you are a fiercely independent woman with a very impressive track record of her own as a, as a working professional. 
How did you reconcile these two? You know, one part of your role was to stand by his side and to be his spouse, but you had this independent career as well. What was your well, thinking about it? Thank goodness I did, I think, in some ways, because I, I think that Downing Street can be quite a lonely place if you're, if you're mm. living there and, and not the Prime Minister. <laughs> the Prime Minister doesn't have time to be lonely. Right, <laughs> right. And the fact that I was had my own job and I was yeah. the first spouse of the Prime Minister to continue with full-time right. employment. Right, right. Um, the fact that I could get out of the house and have something that was mine, that, that yes. you know, my legal career, which I built up by then over 25 years, uh, you know, it, it wasn't something I was prepared to, to, to give up. And it gave me a, a, a sense of perspective and distance. So that was... Um, you know, very, very important to me. Because one thing I was sure of is, as I say, you know, you have a platform, you don't have power, and neither should you have power. Because in, in politics, mm. people should have the power of those who stand for election. If right. you have political power, you should stand for election. Um, if, you, on the other hand, you happen to have a front seat of what is going on, in an administration because you happen to be married to the head of it, uh, that should not give you political power. But it will give you uh, a platform because people will be interested. And therefore, it's important that, you know, when, what you do with that platform, to my mind, what you try and use it for something uh, constructive and, and, and positive. And I think that's why many, many uh, people in that position do look uh, at, at issues such as women and girls and of course the self-belief and confidence that they need that women need in order to shape their own future going back to your childhood what got you interested in studying law it was the mother of uh, my then boyfriend at the time Uh uh-huh because i was i loved history and i was thinking i was was the first person to go to university diversity in my family so no one really knew you know what that really involves so when it came to what I was going to study I was very conscious that you know my mum my mum had left school at 14 because her own mother had died my father because his father had an accident he was a, a merchant seaman he had an accident on the ship that he was working with broke his pelvis my father had to leave school at 16 mm-hmm. uh, to, to go to go to work and there I was at 18, still not bringing any money into the family. So one thing I knew, mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that was practical. Mm-hmm. So much as I loved history, I wanted to do something that I felt... You were contributing, yes. ...the job. Right. And, and she, she said to me, Cherie, you know you, you, know you like arguing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, said, <laughs> I was a big debater and I did a lot of drama. And she said, you know, have you ever thought of the law? And I, that's when I thought of Rose Halbron. I hadn't really, didn't know any lawyers, but I, again, as I said, I thought, well, if Rose can do it, perhaps Sheree can do it. Right, right. And what was your childhood like? Your father was in theatre, I believe? He was. In fact, my parents met when they both were in theatre, but my uh-huh. mom, when my sister, who's two years younger than me, was born, my mum gave up her job in the theatre and went to live with her mother-in-law because I said her mother had already died right in order to make sure that the two of us were brought up uh, together uh, and my father in fact 
uh, by the early 60s, had become one of the first sort of soap stars in Britain. He was famous for a comedy soap mm-hmm. called Till Death Do Us Part, where he essentially played himself, the socialist uh-huh. Liverpudlian son-in-law uh-huh. of, uh, of a East End uh, working class, right. rather bigoted father-in-law. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> Uh, but he also, at that point, he was into drink and drugs mm. and women. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was eight, he'd, he'd abandoned my mother and my sister and myself with his mother um, and had uh, followed the first of his six further children. Mm. I, I, I have, eight, my father had eight daughters in the end by five different women. So mm. um, he mm-hmm. definitely had John. Uh, but my mother at that point mm-hmm. was left with these two girls yeah. and no money and no qualifications. And so for her, it was first of all a struggle. She worked in a fish and chip shop first at the Seaport Dot uh, in Liverpool. And then she managed to get a job in one of the big department stores as a management trainee. And she ended up in the travel business through that. She's in, sounds like an time, incredibly strong so woman. Times, my mum who was good at her job, uh, being asked to train young men who were coming up through the business. You know, time and time again, those young men would get the promotion and my mother would remain, uh, you know, stuck. So. She did it. She did eventually. Yeah. By the time, I mean, but not until 1979, just before I got married, when I was already, my sister and I both left home, she eventually got her own store to manage as a travel agent. Yeah. But, you know, You've seen the struggle firsthand. Yeah, and truth be told, um, on merit, she should have had that position a long time before. So you've seen this over and over again. I mean, not just the assumptions made about women when you were studying or when you were trying to get your job, but you've seen this play out with your parents as well. Yeah. Is that why this platform of gender equality is so deeply personal to you? Definitely, I think, because I, I, I know how, from a personal experience, how damaging it can be and how women can be held back because I saw that from my mother. Yeah. And I also saw the confidence and, and the hopes that she and my grandmother pinned on me that, and my the opportunities that opened up for me because I was born where I was, when I was. Um, so I know that, you know... I, for their sakes too. I mean, what what might they have achieved if if only they had my chances? That's a beautiful note to end it on, a note of hope and optimism for future generations that they'll have more opportunities and more chances. I certainly hope that for my for my granddaughter. I got two now, actually, two granddaughters. Uh, even though, um, as I say, we go back to what I said about the world gender. Yeah. Uh, Global Gender Gap Report, I am determined. You know, when I started off on this journey, I thought, well, now we've changed the law, it's going to be easy. But there are these structural issues that you really have to push to make a change. And I am not prepared to wait until my own granddaughters are not just grandmothers, but great-grandmothers before they see equal opportunities. No, that's too long to wait. We are going to change that. We will change that uh, with the help of Men and women who understand that we all benefit. When women rise, we all rise. We absolutely do. Mrs. Blair, thank you so much for your time and for being such an inspiration to so many people around the world. Thank you so much for asking me uh, to 
take part in this uh, great programme. That's out of office for this week. We'll be back next week featuring another champion of equality. Meanwhile, check out some of our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Bloomberg.com, Twitter, or wherever you usually go for your podcasts. This episode was produced by Jordan Gaspore. I'm Malika Kapoor. We'll be back in a week. Till then, stay well and thank you for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.